The Jodcast. Is that the eye of Sauron or a black hole? With Benjamin Shaw, Isaac Mutti, Laura Dreesen, Crispin Agar, Hongming Tang, and Tana Dale. The Jodcast, April 2019 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Laura Dreesen and joining me in the studio are Crispin. Hey. And Hongming. Hello. In the show this time, Isaac Mutti and Benjamin Shaw answer your astronomical questions. In the show this time, Isaac Mutti and Benjamin Shaw answer your astronomical questions and we interview Leanne Dessen about ALMA observations of evolved stars. But first, before all that, Laura talks to Dr. Tana Joseph in this month's Jod Bite. So for this week's Jod Bite, we're interviewing a Fulbright scholar and a current Newton Fellowship holder here at the University of Manchester, Dr. Tana Joseph. Hi, Tana. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I was wondering, Tana, what are you working on right now? Oh, so right now, that's a really fun, interesting question because I am adding things to my research portfolio, which is always fun. So for the moment, or when I first started working here, my main focus was on trying to find what we call low-mass X-ray binaries in two dwarf galaxies that are only visible in the Southern Hemisphere. So Laura and I, obviously, we're both, well, I say obviously, if you've not picked up from our accent, (laughs) we're both from uh, the Southern Hemisphere, from South Africa and Australia, which is also where we are building the Square Kilometre Array in mm-hmm. South Africa very and Australia. Exciting. Yeah, so we're very excited about that. And there's a lot of awesome astronomy happening in the Southern Hemisphere right now. And one of the cool things is in the Southern Hemisphere, you can see these two dwarf galaxies called the Magellanic Clouds. And they're so close, you can actually see them with the naked eye if you're in a sufficiently dark place. And um, you can't see them at all from the Northern Hemisphere. Um, The SKA precursors, ASCAP and Meerkat, are perfectly placed to observe these galaxies. And they have done, or at least ASCAP has done, and I'm going to use this radio data to look for low-mass X-ray binaries, especially in the small Magellanic Cloud, the large Magellanic Cloud, we know has one low-mass X-ray binary. And the small Magellanic Cloud doesn't have any that we know of. So my main thrust of my research initially was to try and find these populations of low-mass X-ray binaries. But what's so exciting now is that SKA precursors and other big astronomy projects, I mean, other wavelengths like X-ray, are allowing us to not just do that, but to do other interesting stuff related to gravitational waves. And I'm trying to now, with a whole team of new collaborators, we would really like to start doing work where we study the chemical composition of the Magellanic Clouds and these very massive stars that we found in the large Magellanic Cloud, when I say very massive, I mean 200 to 300 times the mass of our sun, which is significantly heavier than we thought stars could get up to, and high-mass X-ray binaries in the Magellanic Clouds, because these pieces altogether are things that we think will contribute to making gravitational wave sources that we can detect with LIGO, which won a Nobel Prize very recently. So we're moving into multi-messenger astronomy, but using SKA precursor data. Like, wow. Yeah, it's a lot. That's so cool. Um, So I have a lot of questions. First of all, I guess, what is an X-ray binary and what do you mean by low and high mass? Because, I mean, we astronomers, we use kind of these Mm hand-wavy terms, but does that have sort of like a line in between what's low and high? And what does it mean by X-ray binary? Yeah. So that's a very good question. And it's something that catches out even professional astronomers if you don't work in that field. So whenever I give a talk, I always make sure that I have one slide where I explain exactly this. So 
when we talk about low mass versus high mass X-ray binaries, and that is actually how we separate them out in academic research, it's as simple as a binary where, so a binary star is two stars and they're orbiting each other and they're gravitationally bound together. And in the case of X-ray binaries, one of the components of this binary, so one of the stars is actually a dead star. So either a neutron star or a black hole. And the other star, material from that star is being pulled off via gravity onto the neutron star or the black hole. And as that material falls towards the neutron star or black hole, it heats up to about 10 million degrees and gives off X-rays. And that's what we study because obviously you can ask yourself, but it's a black hole, how can you see a black hole? So you don't see the black hole itself, but you see the material as it falls towards the black hole or the neutron star. And that's how you know there's something there that's very energetic, that has very strong gravitational pull. And that's what's causing all this matter to be pulled off from the companion star or the donor star. So that's what an X-ray binary is. And the difference between high mass and low mass X-ray binaries has nothing to do with the neutron star or the black hole's mass, but has everything to do with the donor or companion star's mass. So the star that you probably think of as less interesting actually determines a lot about how the binary star behaves and what kind of emission, so light, that we see coming from these stars and also the lifetime even of these binary systems. So a high-mass X-ray binary is an X-ray binary that has a donor or companion star that's at least about 10 times the mass of our sun. A low-mass X-ray binary is a binary comprised of a black hole or neutron star and a companion or donor star that's not more than about one or two times the mass of our sun. And the in-between range, the 2 to 10 solar mass range, or we call them intermediate mass binaries. There are very few of them known, and we don't really work on them that much. And the reason why we don't know of very many and they're hard to study is because the kind of mass transfer that happens onto the neutron star or black hole from the donor star where the material is being pulled off, it happens very quickly and very abruptly, and it's very difficult to actually see that happening because the time scale over which that happens is so short that it's kind of a blink and you miss it situation. Mm -hmm. So those are the categories of X-ray binaries. So I guess these things, they're called X-ray binaries. Does that mean you always see them in X-ray or that they could be, I guess, invisible or not on in X-rays for a bit and then you just happen to get lucky? I guess, how do you find these things? So again, whether you see them or not in X-ray comes down to whether it's a low mass or a high mass X-ray binary. Mm -hmm. So low-mass X-ray binaries tend to always sort of be on at some level in Mm -hmm. X-rays, but you can also get radio emission from them in the form of jets. High-mass X-ray binaries tend to have more periodic, not periodic in the sense of a pulsar that it's like you can actually set your clock by it, but the X-ray light that comes from it comes in big flares Mm -hmm. and comes in um, bursts or, or flares or episodes rather than it being consistently on. And then there's also... The X-ray emission from these systems also changes depending on whether the compact object is a neutron star or black hole. That also produces a certain kind of emission that has very sort of set paths to follow. And that's actually a way you can tell the difference between whether it's a neutron star or a black hole as Mm -hmm. the the compact object component that's pulling material from the donor star. And then, like I said, you can see some radio jets or radio flares Depending on if it's a high-mass X-ray binary system, you can have a lot of optical light as well. Some of these systems can be seen in gamma rays. So these are really multi-wavelength objects, but they are particularly bright in X-rays. 
Okay, cool. So you mentioned the Magellanic Clouds. So they're kind of like our mini galaxies next to our own galaxy mm-hmm. or slash getting eaten by our galaxy. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned that there's what, one X-ray binary in one of them, but not in the other. Is there a yeah. reason for that? Is it expected? Would you expect to see someone you aren't? Or is it kind of okay? We're like, oh, yeah, we don't see one, but oh, well. Um, or is that something interesting that maybe is missing? So the short answer is there something is missing. Mm-hmm. So the large Magellanic Cloud has one low mass X-ray binary that we know of, and the small Magellanic Cloud has none. And from our sort of calculations and extrapolations from our own galaxy, which is much bigger than the Magellanic Clouds, which is why we call them dwarf galaxies, we expect that there should be about between 5 and 10 of these low mass XA binaries in the small Magellanic Cloud, um, and they'd be on the faint end, so really faint Mm -hmm. in radio and X-ray, so not a lot of um, light coming from them. And this is why... It's so great that we have Meerkat and ASCAP, the SK precursors, because they're the most powerful and sensitive radio interferometers, certainly in the Southern Hemisphere. And so now we finally have the technology to go and look for these really, really faint sources. Mm -hmm. And we expect them to be there, and we expect to find a, a few, like a handful. And it'll be really interesting because if we do find these systems, these low mass X-ray binaries in the small Magellanic Cloud... It, the small Magellanic Cloud will then become the first galaxy that will have a complete sample of different types of X-ray binaries in it. It's so close that we can actually study um, them in really fine detail. We can learn a lot about the donor star and so on and do some really detailed astronomy in terms of binary research. So if you find these are there, does that tell you about the Magellanic Cloud itself? And maybe that can tell you about other galaxies or is it more about those individual systems? Um, It's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. So whether we find them or not will tell us something about how binary stars form, how they change, how they grow. If we find, say, for instance, we expect to find 10, but we find 20, Mm -hmm. that tells us that maybe we don't quite understand how binary stars form and grow. And actually, there's some mechanism maybe that we're overlooking in terms of formation. If we find one and we're expecting to find 10, then that also tells us something. Then again, we've, we've not really understood the whole picture of how these systems actually come about. And one thing that's interesting about the Magellanic Clouds compared to our galaxy, the Milky Way, is that the Magellanic Clouds have a lot less heavy elements in them compared to the abundances that you find in the Milky Way galaxy, Mm -hmm. in our galaxy. So there are fewer what we call metals in astronomy. So in astronomy, a metal is anything that's not hydrogen and helium. Yeah, we're a bit vague like that. Yeah. <laughs> so what we have in the Magellanic Clouds is that um, they have about one-fifth the metal abundance um, that the, than what the galaxy or the Milky Way has. And so with different kinds of abundances like that of oxygen and carbon and all that kind of stuff, you get different types of stars forming. And then you get different types of things like the supernova mechanisms might be different. So different kinds of physics due to the different kinds of materials that make up the stars. And so if we find things are slightly different than we anticipated, given that we're extrapolating from our galaxy, then we can start to also probe the role that uh, metals or chemical composition plays in how stars live and die and form. So you also mentioned some 200 solar mass stars. Mm -hmm. And to me, so a star that's 200 times the mass of the sun. And to me, that sounds crazy. That's not something you learn about in Astronomy 101. We talk about, you know, 20 solar masses, that sort of thing is okay. But then bigger than that, you go, wait, what? So do we have evidence of those things? And how the heck did they get there? So those are really interesting questions. And it's only 
quite recently, I'll say in the last five years or so, that we've mm-hmm. come to realize that there's a significant population of 200 to 300 solar mass stars in the Magellanic Clouds, in the large Magellanic Clouds. So our models of understanding, again, of how stars are formed and how they uh, change their mass with blowing off winds or coronal mass ejections or transferring matter to a, a neutron star, a black hole, for instance, or some other star, we figure out, well, we look at all these things and we're like, okay, so putting all these things together from looking at old stars, this is probably how much they must have weighed when they were born or looking in places where new stars are formed. We're like, okay, this is how much they weigh given how much light we're getting from them. But a lot of these things, when we look at them, they're actually being done in our own galaxy. And as I just mentioned, the Magellanic Clouds are made up of different kinds of material or different abundances of material compared to our galaxy. So, And that actually influences how big you can make a star when it's born. So in standard stellar initial mass uh, models imply or say that 150 solar masses, so something 150 times the mass of our sun, is sort of the upper limit of a normal quote-unquote star that you would expect, like that's a heavy star. Then we look in the large Magellanic Cloud and we found that there are these significant number of stars, so not hundreds, but certainly more than we thought, between 150 or 200 and 300 solar masses. So this is using optical data. And it was a huge surprise and not something we expected. And these stars are massive and they, the bigger a star is, paradoxically, the shorter its lifetime. So these stars are, if you see them, they must be very young, comparatively compared to smaller stars, certainly like stars like our sun. So catching them means that they're very young and we don't have a good handle on how they could have formed, how they could have actually accumulated that mass in the protostar phase. So we think that the metallicity, the low metallicity has something to do with that because we also um, have some idea of how stars, these massive stars especially, lose mass. So they have these big winds of material that blow off the surface of them because they're so hot. And the more metals that are in your star the stronger these winds and the brighter these winds and the more mass they lose. But if you have low metallicity, you're not going to have as strong winds and you're not going to lose as much mass. So it's not surprising if you think about it from that point of view that you would see them in low metallicity environments like the large Magellanic Cloud compared to higher metallicity environments like our galaxy. So these are all things now, lessons that we're having to learn. We're having to change our theories and our models to actually fit in with detections and observations and that's always fun people i think sometimes get the idea that scientists are very married to or very committed to certain models and for some people that might be true but it's almost always way more exciting when you find something that breaks your model or challenges your understanding of how the universe works or how anything works because then that means you have more questions to answer which is what we do for a living yeah, for sure. I think we're more excited when something goes wrong than yeah. when we go, oh, yeah, okay, fine. It was what we expected. And when we find something not ex- we're not expecting, we go like, whoa, what? Yeah. yes, <laughs> more things to yeah. learn. And just for the listener, I can't say too much, but Laura herself is sitting on something <laughs> that's kind of interesting. So stay tuned if you want to learn more about things that are busting our understanding of things that we kind of thought we had a handle on. Um, in the upcoming months, Laura might have her own story about that. For sure. I'll make sure I, I put it on the Jodcast when it can. But I think as well, I think uh, on the Jodcast as well, because we've got a lot of radio astronomers, we talk a lot about pulsars and, and black holes and that sort of thing, and we make it sound very exciting. But I think a lot of us don't really think about how exciting 
quote unquote normal stars are Mm -hmm. and how much we still have to learn because we think, you know, the sun's right there. So we know everything. But that's definitely not the case. We're definitely working out Absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, it's the it's the case that if you just used one star mm-hmm. to try and explain all of the stars, you're going to run into some serious problems. And sometimes we lose sight of that as scientists. You know, we make do with what we, with the technology that we have. We're limited by that. We're limited by things in our galaxy, things that are too far away to really study in detail. So we, we're making, um, you know, making the best of the tools that, with the tools that we have and the information that we have. But with these fantastic, we can't call them next generation instruments anymore, current generation instruments (laughs) that are very new and are starting to take data and are starting to give us more insight into the universe. It's a really fun time to be doing astronomy because it's not just the SKA and its precursors as radio interferometers. It's also Gaia, the Gaia project that's given us a whole new insight into our own galaxy and the stars that make up our own galaxy. And then there's the LIGO, so the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Waves Observatory, um, which discovered gra- direct evidence for gravitational waves and they won the Nobel Prize. And they've just started a few days ago their third observing run, so we're going to see a lot more fun, exciting stuff coming out of that. <laughs> more black holes. Yes. Or more neutron stars. <laughs> yes, neutron star mergers. That would yeah, be neutron so star exciting. mergers, because that's, you know, the double neutron star is how we actually found indirect evidence for gravitational waves and also won a Nobel Prize several decades ago. And so as pulsar people and as neutron star people here at JBCA, we're super excited about that. So, you know, we think it's high time that the gravitational waves people catch up. Yes, we, I think yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like we, we knew, you know, we made neutron stars happen, so they need to hurry up and yeah. also, you know, give us some more information. There's so much more to learn and all these current generation instruments. And if you think about it, I guess next generation, because SKA will, falls under next generation. Yeah, it's still being built. It's still being built, but the precursors are current and mm-hmm. already being fantastic. And LIGO's doing a lot of interesting stuff. So it's just a really interesting time to be doing astronomy and to be branching out of our, what we thought would be our set research yes, for areas. Sure. For sure. We're all, we're all branching out to different things, lots of different things now. So it sounds like you have a lot of work to do. But I also know that you work a lot on outreach and science communication and things like that, and that you have your own business, actually. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I'm very passionate about science engagement and science communication with the public and especially with, you know, with communities or with groups of people who traditionally aren't seen as scientists or even worse, in a way, don't see themselves as scientists. So I always like to have audiences that are diverse and made up of um, young women or people of color who don't normally have access to STEM materials or STEM education, etc. And I really love talking to people and getting them excited about science because I'm very excited about science. And and I was from a very young age and I was very lucky because both my parents were high school science teachers. So that kind of thing was always something that, you know, was talked about in the home and not everyone has that. But now with the advent of the internet and especially things like citizen science, it's becoming easier and easier for people to get involved in science. And with my company, what the idea of it is that it's a science communication and consulting company. And that sounds like a lot of jargon, but basically what I do is I provide science input or technical input and support in any kind of context that requires it for people who don't have a technical background. So one of my clients, or my first client, was someone who saw me give a talk at the Blue Dot Festival. So those of you who are interested in science and live music, 
and really like the festival scene, especially in the UK summers, the famous festival scene. The Blue Dot Festival is a science and music festival hosted at the Jojo Bank Observatory over a weekend in July. And it's fantastic. I had a great time. Lorna and I were there helping as volunteers. It's super awesome. Fun for the whole family. There's so much to do. And I gave a talk there last year. And one of the audience members found me on LinkedIn and hired me to come give a talk about big data in the SKA era in astronomy. And that was my first engagement for my company, which is called Astrocoms. And so that is an example of the science communication. And then the science consulting would be things like giving technical input or being the technical lead on, for instance, a TV show or a movie. If you look at movies like Arrival, which I absolutely love, Gravity, those kind of movies. The scriptwriters don't know about science or, you know, the science of microgravity and spaceships and all of that. So they get someone like Kip Thorne, mm-hmm. who won yeah. a Nobel Prize for his work with discovering gravitational waves with LIGO. He was actually the science consultant on, was it Gravity? I think it was Gravity. Or was it we Interstellar? check that one. Either Gravity <laughs> or Interstellar. Mm-hmm. And both those movies were given high praise for having such good representation of the science and of the technical side, like things were really spot on. And that's because they had someone like Kip Thorne, who subsequently became a Nobel Prize winner, giving them a lot of input. So I do that as well. So if you don't have, my joke is if you don't have Interstellar budget money, then you probably can't afford Kip Thorne, but you can afford me. <laughs> For sure, and, and so, yeah. you, do, you do an excellent job too, so that's yeah. an extra bonus. Um, yeah, I also have a PhD, and um, so I'm in talks with someone who's just started their own production company mm-hmm. to get more into that side of things, and those are just kind of some of the examples of the work that I do with my company, but I'm still very committed to doing school talks, I'm very active on social media, answering any questions um, that people may have, and people have a lot of interesting questions, especially we're so lucky as astronomers mm-hmm. to have that particular science that people just really love and connect to. And especially in terms of things like indigenous astronomy, mm-hmm. in a lot of cultures, astronomy has a very important cultural significance and it's starting to be explored now. And as astronomers, we try and promote that as well because it just shows that the night skies and the happenings of the night sky have been important to people across the globe for millennia. And it brings us all together, like we're all under one beautiful big sky as people we all look up and wonder so i guess if somebody wanted to ask you a question maybe twitter or something like that where would they go oh absolutely yes i'm on twitter and my dms are not open but if you tweet at me i'll tweet back um so my handle is at tana d joseph and yeah i'm always happy to answer questions it's great to chat with people especially people who feel quite removed from science in one way to get involved in science, as I mentioned earlier, something called citizen science, where we actually desperately as scientists need the public to help us. Because when we talk about these current and next generation fantastic instruments, what we actually have is too much data. Oh yeah, absolutely. Too much data (laughs) and not enough scientists to actually wade through that data. So if you are a school kid or you're a stay-at-home parent or you are an accountant out somewhere or a farmer... You can still contribute um, by doing things like SETI at home, where Mm -hmm. you connect your computer through some software to a big network of computers around the globe, and you can help to look for signals coming from extraterrestrials, or you can help us sort galaxies, because it's very difficult to teach computers to sort galaxies, but technically, like any five-year-old, and most five-year-olds now to use an iPad very well now, they can help us sort galaxies, and we desperately need help like that. And it's not just in the astronomy and physical sciences. 
They are also, if you're really into animals, you can go on something called Zooniverse. Mm-hmm. So there's astronomy stuff you can do there. There's helping to track the migration and movement of sea mammals like whales, which are endangered in a lot of places. Tracking them with satellite images, you can help sort through that. There's even things for transcribing. One project that I saw that I really like, people transcribing the notes and writings of American soldiers during the American Civil War. Oh, wow. But especially black soldiers during the American Civil War and getting those records up to date. So if you're a bit of a history buff, you can get involved in that. So there's a lot of research that we really, really would love the general public to get involved in, no matter what your background. You're basically helping us do things that we're desperately trying to teach computers to do, but it's hard. And people are very, very good at recognizing patterns and saying, that's a spiral galaxy, that's a an elliptical galaxy, that galaxy has rings around it and this one doesn't. And it's surprisingly difficult to teach a computer to do that, but a five-year-old can do that. So do get involved, zooniverse.org, I think it yeah, is. Yeah, I think it is. We'll put the links in the notes. Yeah, and just, yeah, find something you like, whether it's animal or mineral, um, there'll be something for you to do. Yeah, and I think it's super exciting now that that just anybody can really, really help with science and you can just get involved and you're genuinely making a difference. Absolutely, because science is for everyone and that's something that we as people must never lose sight of just because you don't have a formal background in research doesn't mean that you can't make a significant contribution. Yeah, for sure. So thanks for that, Tana. That was really awesome. We'll make sure that we put links to all of Tana's research and her Twitter and her company and things like that into the notes that you guys can have a look. Um, And make sure you do shoot her any questions on Twitter because we absolutely love answering astronomy questions, especially if it's something that has been in the back of your mind for forever and you just really want to know. Um, So thanks for that, Tana. And hopefully we'll hear from you again on the Judcast soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a fun chat. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for that, Laura Drizzen. Now, Michael Wright interviews Leon Deason about ELMA observations of evolved stars. Hello, welcome to the Jobcast interview. I'm Michael Wright, and across the table from me... I'm Lena Sinn from the University of Leuven in Belgium. So, brief introduction, who are you and what do you do? So, I'm professor at the Leuven University, and there I have my group of students, and we are working on several programs. One of them is uh, focusing on old stars, on evolved stars, and then I have a few of my students who are working on exoplanets. But today I'm here in Manchester to continue our research on these old stars. Can you briefly explain what your research is on these stars? Okay, so the focus of that research is we all know that when stars are born, the parameter that determines their evolution is their initial mass. So we are focusing on stars that have a mass between 0.8 and 8 solar masses. So as our sun, so they are low intermediate mass stars, and after the main sequence, these stars will increase their size. They will become red, red giant stars. So they will become much cooler than what they have been when they were at the main sequence, and they will become much larger. And during that phase, they develop a stellar wind. But take into account that often there is a little bit of a confusion. The stellar wind is not as a wind that happens on our Earth, which is circling around the Earth. But the stellar wind, you can compare a little bit with a rocket that is launched. So it departs from the surface of the star, and it puts material from the star into the interstellar medium. So it's a way of removing material from the star. And the focus that we have here, and also why I'm here, is really trying to understand the strength of these stellar winds, since it is that strength of the stellar winds 
that determines how long these old stars will live. And we wish to understand how do these stellar winds, how do they start? When do stars develop as stellar winds? What's the physics behind it? What is the chemistry that is involved? So that is roughly the focus of that part of the research. The first bit of the research then is clearly going to be getting the data for this. So how are you going to get that? What are you going to use? So we have already a lot of data. These stars have been observed for decades. But as of 2011, we have a big focus on ALMA. So the 66 telescopes that are working together in Chile. ALMA in general is an incredible instrument. As we have gained a lot of insight thanks to its enormous spatial resolution that allows us to really look with very much detail into these stars. And so with ALMA, we have, as of 2011, we have received the first data sets of some of these evolved stars. But you will realize there are many stars, first of all. Secondly, getting this ALMA observing time is not easy. People should realize we have to write proposals for that, and only a fraction of them is accepted to be effectively executed. And so we got, indeed, we are lucky to almost every cycle, we got one star observed in one specific frequency band. But last year, together with the help of some people here in Manchester, but also other people in Europe and the US, we have written a huge program. It's called an ALMA Large Program. Its acronym is ATOMIUM. I'm from Belgium, so it has a specific reason. And with Atomium, we now have some 113 hours of observing time to look to 17 stars in a homogeneous way at the same frequencies. And that will help us enormously in understanding how the stellar winds arise, what is happening, and all bites, and I cannot say too much yet, but we are here to work on the data reduction. We are here in Manchester to work on that. But we got already the first data arriving as of October 2018, and it's marvelous what we see. It's really marvelous. We are absolutely sure that it will change our view completely on these stellar winds. I think some of you who have been walking around the last few days have seen marvelous images on our screens, and this really opens a completely new window. They do indeed look wonderful. Since up until now, these old stars, sometimes you can compare it a little bit with just with society, but these old stars, stars were seen as being old-fashioned and very boring, extremely boring. Who wants to look at old stars? And it's the same when it comes to press releases and things like that. People think, oh, why issue a press release about an old star when I'm trying to issue press releases for exoplanets? It's much more easy. But I hope that now finally people will accept that these old stars, they have a lot of wisdom and we should understand them if we want to understand what is happening in the galaxy. We should. So then you've talked about looking at old stars, but you picked from them 17. Yes. How did you choose which ones you wanted to look at? So you would like to choose your pet objects, which is not a good way of doing sciences. We were also, we now for a large program for ALMA, roughly something as 100 hours is acceptable. So we are now a little bit beyond that. And so that gives already first indication on how many stars can we pick say roughly 20. And then we have chosen that once in a scientific way. I mean, we have tried to sample some of the important parameters very well. Then we have taken the stars that as 
as close as possible to Earth so that they look larger, so that we gain in spatial resolution in what we can observe there. And so we have, for that, we have used databases, astronomical databases. We have put there our requirements, and that gave us the filter towards these are the stars that we will look after. And some of them are indeed objects I did know already beforehand, but some of these targets I have never watched before. We see indeed it is that way of trying to, as good as possible, homogeneously sample your parameter space, which is important to the sciences. Okay, so now you have what you're using to observe, and you have chosen your stars. What particularly about those stars are you looking for? We are looking for the morphologies of these stellar winds, and we are looking for the chemistry. And why does this look to very basic things? But they are not. For instance, looking to which molecules are present in the stellar winds will tell us which dust species are formed. Since I haven't told you that yet, but these stellar winds are thought to be driven by newly formed dust species that form just above the stellar surface. So these stars are variable, so they change in time. So they're sometimes a little bit larger, a little bit smaller, not too much. But when they are pulsating, and they're a little bit larger and cooler, you have perfect conditions for these molecules to condense into dust grains. And these dust grains, all by small, around 100-200 nanometer, they are still considerably larger than these very tiny molecules. So what is happening then is that these dust grains can interact with your stellar photons, which act a little bit as a force on the dust grains, these dust grains can get accelerated outwards. And while they're doing that, they're colliding with all the little gas species around it. So not only the gas is moving away, also the gaseous species. And that's the cause for our stellar winds. So what are we now doing with that chemistry? Well, we still do not know which will be the first dust species that form. I can, if you would ask me the question, Lean, what will our sun do in 4.5 billion years old when it becomes a red giant? What will be the first dust species? What will be its mass loss rate? What will be its velocity of the wind? I cannot tell that to you. I wish I could, but I cannot. And I cannot since I still cannot tell you which are the first dust species that are formed. That's one of the goals of that large program is understanding and waveling which molecules will transition into this first first dust species. Where does that happen? I mean, in terms of with respect to the surface of the star. And what type of wind, what will be the strength, what will be the velocity of the wind? This is what I wish to understand. That's one of the goals. So I want to understand the wind launching mechanism in these evolved stars. And for that, to understand this, I need to understand the chemistry. That's one of the goals. It's a large program, so it has many goals. Yes, I was about to say, what other goals are you pursuing as well as this? We have looked already at a few stars, let's say a handful of stars. And from that handful of stars, we see a lot of intricacies. I refer now to a press release that will come out in two or three weeks' time. We hope it's a paper accepted for Nature Astronomy and Albert Sells references from Manchester University involved as well. So what do we see around some of these stars is that the stellar wind is not homogeneous, but we see spiral structures around it. 
these pilot structures are caused, we think, by the fact that the star is not living alone, but has a binary companion. And if you know a little bit about stellar evolution and binaries, well, you know it already from the laws of Kepler, that even when you have a planet and a sun, the planet will move around the sun. But as a consequence, also our sun moves a little bit since it feels attraction. And also our sun is making a little circle. So what is happening now? Now you don't have a planet. You, for instance, have two stars equally mass. Your primary star, which is this old star, which is losing mass, will also wobble around its center of mass due to the fact that it has a binary companion. And then you see, when it's wobbling around its center of mass, meanwhile losing material, you almost can envision that that wobbling around the center of mass will affect your stellar wind and will create a spiral. So this is for some stars. We have seen spirals in the stellar winds, which is then the indirect indicator that you're not living alone, but that you have a binary companion. And so what will be the press release about is that First of all, we have indirectly detected these binary companions around two very old stars, but they were thought to have extremely high mass loss rates, the highest mass loss rates that one ever have found, around few times 10 to the minus 4 solar masses per year. And we now have proven that we were wrong, scientists were wrong, since we were interpreting the data as being, oh, these stars live there alone. But when you know that they are binary companions, then you do some simulations, you can show that our mass loss estimates were wrong by one order of magnitudes. So these stars were thought to be the record holders of the mass loss rate. And now we have dethroned them. They're not anymore the record holders. They are just old stars which have a normal mass loss rate. We were wrong, and this is an important result. As a consequence of our results, we can tell you that old stars will live longer than what we thought they would do, which is a very nice result, I think. That's a very good thing to hear. Could you give sort of an estimate of how long those stars might live? Well, stars in general live billions of years, the stars that we're talking about. And now I'm just focusing on this last bit. That last bit takes a few million years, but even there, there's a, quite a bit of a change depending on your initial mass. The lower your mass, the longer you will live. So it's a very tough question to answer exactly with numbers, but generally we can now say that they will live longer by a few million years. But that will change depending on the initial mass. Yeah, and that was a lovely little introduction to what your project is about. And I think that should bring us on to what are you doing here in Manchester? What's the goal of coming here and working with us? The goal is very obvious for me. Here in Manchester, you have the experts to look at the ALMA data and the reduction of this ALMA data. So Anita Richards, one of my main collaborators here, is the person with whom I have been working already for several years she is an expert on ALMA data and she's an expert on evolved stars. So the best place to come for my ALMA data is here. And I have ALMA nodes, as they're called, closer to my home place, closer to Leuven. But they do not have these evolved stars experts with them. So it's much better to collaborate with people who are both expert in the ALMA data and who are intrigued in the science that you can do with that. And Anita is brilliant. 
So we are here now, and I think we are here today with some 15, 20 people, that's almost half of the consortium, to work together on this ALMA data. Since people will not realize it potentially, but this ALMA data take a lot of storage already here at the Manchester University, and we will need to buy a new storage place, since it's over a few hundred terabytes of data that we will gather. That's enormous, a few hundred terabytes. And then... We are a little bit nervous since when you receive the data, they are only private for you for one year and then they come into the public domain. This means that other people can work with this data as well, but we want to be the first to have the nice results out. So we are now here with 15 people. We are instructed by Anita how we should improve the data reduction of the ALMA data. And we are a little bit nervous since these data cubes are huge. It takes us always a lot of time before they load onto the desktop, before we can proceed to the next step. But it's only when you're with a lot of people together that each of us can now focus on another star and so that we progress in this data reduction since it's impossible for Anita to do that alone. It's too much manual work. And now we are here doing that together with 20 people. Sometimes one of us has a problem, but then we have Anita close by to help us solving that. And I hope that by the time that we leave, already for a fraction of the data that we have received, we haven't received everything yet, the data is coming in step by step. It will take us more than one year before we have all data, but we have already the first data. And that is why we are here doing this data reduction and then later on the today we start also the science discussions since we have seen already some very nice results. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy your time here at Manchester. I will. Thank you. Thanks for that, Michael. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So Crispin, are you going to freak us out with some uh, meteor stuff yes. and explosions? So NASA's reported on the detection of a huge meteor explosion over the Bering Strait off the Russian Kamchatka Peninsula, which occurred on the 18th of December last year. So this is the second largest of its kind in 30 years, and it released energy equivalent to about 174,000 tonnes of TNT. And the largest meteor was the Chelyabinsk fireball, which released a whopping 440 kilotons. So Wiley Coyote would not survive So Wiley Coyote would probably not survive this. Now, this piece of news is important as it highlights the small but ever-present threat from near-Earth asteroids, which on impact could do absolutely devastating damage to our towns and cities. So, for context, the Fat Man atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki in 1945 was only, well, only, he said in inverted commas, 21 kilotons. So in 2005, the US Congress issued NASA with a task to find and monitor about 90%, or at least 90%, of near-Earth asteroids of at least 140 metres in diameter by 2020. So these asteroids are problematic because of their size, and they're known as problems without passports. So on impact, they could affect huge areas of Earth. Now, I don't have a precise number for the size of the Bering Strait meteor, but I have a quote here which says it measured several metres in size, so it's probably not that big at all. So fortunately, the chance of a significant meteor strike at a given time is pretty low, and our civilization is further protected by the fact that Earth is about 71% water by surface area. But this event serves as a potent reminder of why we need to have systems in place to identify and monitor these potential threats. I mean, that's a bit scary. 
Yep. <laughs> yes. I, I guess statistically we're not in that much trouble, right? But it no. seems dramatic. It does. So obviously we can't really do much about massive meteors on a collision course with Earth direct. But what has been talked about and current research is looking into is if these can be detected far enough in advance, we should be able to, well, directed energy weapons, essentially fire a giant laser at them, which should then vaporise part of the surface of it, effectively creating a small thruster to knock it off course and away from Earth. Do we have a giant laser? I think the simple answer is no, we don't currently. But it's been demonstrated on small scales. Okay. And by the way, actually, is there any current network to monitor this kind of things? So there is currently a series of ground-based optical observatories around the world, some of which in Russia and quite a few in the US. So, for example, in June last year, a small, about three-metre diameter asteroid, 2018 LA, was discovered by the Mount Lemmon Observatory in Arizona. This was about eight hours before it impacted Earth. And NASA was able to precisely determine its orbit and use that to say that it was going to land somewhere in southern Africa. And a bit later, a fireball was observed over Botswana by a farm's CCTV, and then they found fragments in the surrounding area. That object exploded with only about one kiloton of energy at an altitude of around 29 kilometres, so didn't really pose a threat. But I mean, one kiloton still sounds like a lot. It is quite a bit, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I guess if it's exploding not on Earth... Yeah, I think it's okay. the distance it was above civilization, and then it fragmented and, well, nobody died. So I mean, that is good. That's always nice. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad they're monitoring it, but if there was one giant enough for us to worry about, I kind of hope they wouldn't tell us. Don't know if I want that sort of stress in my life. So long and thanks for all the fish. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And is there a reason why they're all monitored from the Northern Hemisphere? Should the Southern Hemisphere be worried? Because you said mainly America, the US and Russia. and Russia. I think it's purely facilities available. Yeah. As long as they can see enough of the sky that it doesn't matter, I guess it's okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Crispin. (laughs) Don't know if I feel better or worse after hearing about these, but thanks anyway. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about something a little bit different. We normally talk about recent news, I guess, in odds and ends, but this is very not recent. So I work a bit on Flare Stars, so I've mostly talked about FRBs, Fast Radio Verse. When I've come on the Dudcast, I've mostly talked about Fast Radio Verse because I am a radio astronomer and we're biased towards cool space flashes. But I also work on flare-type objects, flare-type stars, and in the process of my PhD, I've got to learn about a whole lot of different types of these. So one kind of flare-type object is called a cataclysmic variable, and that's when a white dwarf, which is a remnant of a low-mass star, so about 90% of stars in the sky are going to end their life as a white dwarf. So it's just basically as it kind of gets old and cools down and gets smaller and then turns into a white dwarf. So some of these white dwarfs are in a binary with another star, and if they're close enough, things start to go boom because the mass from the bigger star, the not-white dwarf star, gets pulled off the star by the white dwarf onto the white dwarf, and that causes the cataclysmic part where things get a bit explosive. But in the process of learning about these things, I just kind of randomly thought to myself, I wonder when the first white dwarf was discovered because these things are actually quite hard to detect because you can't see them in optical. They are very bright or can be very bright in the ultraviolet or near ultraviolet, but they're not detected in optical. So I thought, we've looked at the sky in optical for a while, like a couple of thousand years because of our eyes, but with telescopes a few hundred (laughs) years. So the first white dwarf discovered was 40 Eridani B, and the object itself was found in 1785. So it was noticed that this star, so 40 Eridani A, the main bright, well, actually it's called the secondary companion because the most massive star is the primary. 
the normal star was seen to be doing some weird stuff. So it was concluded that it was in a binary. And in 1910, the secondary star, the B star, was found to be a white dwarf. It wasn't actually called a white dwarf at that point, but the way that they described it, we knew that it was a white dwarf. And the second ever white dwarf discovered was Sirius B. So Sirius A is the brightest star in the night sky. It's actually moving towards us, so it'll get brighter very slowly, and then it'll get fainter again. But it's going to be the brightest star for over 200,000 years from now, so it'll still be the brightest star. You'll also know Sirius from being Harry Potter's godfather. So this is where J.K. (laughs) Rowling got the the, um, idea from. So Sirius A was seen to be in a binary in 1877. So again, it was the same sort of thing. It was seen to be moving around in a binary way, even though they couldn't really see the other star. But in 1915, it was identified that its companion, the other star, was a star similar to the 40 Eridani B. So again, they didn't say white dwarf because there wasn't any idea of that kind of object. But by saying that it was the same as the other object, it's the second ever white dwarf. So I looked up in our search system that we used to find papers for papers on Sirius B. Again, I just thought, you know, that sounds interesting. I want to find out more about this white dwarf. That's the second ever discovered. And as I scrolled down, I noticed that one of the papers was called A Poem About Sirius B. Excellent. Yes, excellent. See? And, I mean, immediately I was like, oh, wouldn't it be so cool if someone wrote a poem about something that we found? That would be awesome. (laughs) Um, So I would like to read you this poem because it's great. It's very short. So it's called Thoughts on Sirius B. And to be honest, it doesn't actually say who wrote the poem, which is a little bit sad because I'd like to give credit. But it doesn't say, it's just a one-page astronomy note, and it's called Thoughts on Sirius B, and it goes, He thought he saw by Sirius a tiny speck of light. He looked again and saw it was astonishingly white. A ton of gas per cubic inch, he cried. That dwarf is tight. So I just thought, (laughs) it's funny because it's become a little bit of a colloquialism now to say something is tight, it's cool, and I thought that is very cool. Um, Just to clarify, when is this from? This, so the poem itself is from 1960. Amazing. Yeah, Great. exactly. And I think that's really, really <laughs> cool. And I guess that led me down a path and something to Google is astronomy poems or poems inspired by astronomy objects, because there are lots of really good ones. For example, another one, which is about something called a quasar. So a quasar is something that's bright in the radio. And it's called a quasar because it was initially called a quasi-star. Something that looked like a star, but isn't a star. Isn't a star. Yeah. Exactly. It's an active galactic nucleus. So the center of a galaxy where black hole crazy stuff is happening, jets come out of that. And if you were looking straight down the jet, it's called a quasar because it looks like a point source. Whereas if you're looking at the jet sideways, it looks like an elongated radio source. So George Gamow wrote a poem, which I thought was really nice because it sort of riffs off Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Twinkle, twinkle, quasi-star, biggest puzzle from afar. How unlike the other ones, brighter than a billion suns. Twinkle, twinkle, quasi-star, how I wonder what you are. And I guess I like this. (laughs) (laughs) I like this one especially because it kind of goes a little bit into the science. The reason that quasi-stars were also called quasi-stars is because they scintillate, they kind of flicker. So stars do that, but planets don't because of their angular size on the sky. Stars are affected by how turbulent the Earth's atmosphere is. And that causes them to twinkle, whereas planets, because they're a bit bigger on the sky, that's not affected. Right. That doesn't affect yeah. them. But quasars, again, because they're small in the radio, they're small and they're really far away. So they have the same sort of twinkling, but from the interstellar medium. So from the dust and gas in between us and the quasar. 
as opposed to between just the Earth's atmosphere and the star. So I just thought that one was nice too, because it kind of points out an interesting bit of science that you can get out of these objects using scintillometry and stellar scintillation. So I would totally recommend looking up more about astronomy poems. It's a nice little recent discovery of mine, but something that's been around for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're very, yes, brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, and and if anybody, oh man, if anybody would like to write a poem, oh, please do. Oh my goodness, Just do it. that yeah. would be amazing. Yes. So, I mean, I would invite you to maybe look at some of the science results that have come out of Jodrell Bank. That would yes. be cool. Jodrell Bank Pulsars. theme poetry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pulsar poetry, get that beat. Yes. And can make a poetry challenge sometime, maybe? Yeah. I mean, I cannot participate. My poetry skills are non-existent. I can try, maybe a limerick, haiku, something like that. <laughs> that would be really cool. Yeah, definitely. So anybody, if anybody can do that, then we will definitely be we'll, very impressed. And we will probably read them out on a future show. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So from poetry, let's go to something that a lot of scientists maybe might maybe inspire everyone. scientists yes. to poetry. Because yeah, yeah. we were very inspired. <laughs> there was something we just knew and something really... Excited, especially because I'm studying supermassive black holes, so mm-hmm. that makes the whole community excited. And some of us, I saw the press conference, they burst into tears, that's true. Did they really? Amazing. Oh, wow. That was really true. <laughs> but that's true, though. Maybe once we've, when, when someone actually finds out what an FRB is, I might cry. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> Crispin's like, I'm going to hold her to that. <laughs> He's going to come into my office with a camera. <laughs> yeah. That was um, something really interesting. Uh, so, as you might have already know, and if you are on Twitter, on Facebook, or whatever social media, you would definitely saw this already. The Event Horizon Telescope, EHT, held a press conference. It is the very first time we observe the shadow of the black hole. Woohoo! Everyone got excited. I mean, everyone just got excited. (laughs) And this is really amazing. So basically, HD released their black hole observation outcome of Messier 87, or named Virgo A, a supergiant elliptical galaxy. So the black hole they observed resides 55 million light years from Earth and has a size of 6.5 billion times that of the Sun, which is really gigantic. So EHT chose the black hole to observe at its relatively close and big. So needless to say, observation required extremely high image resolution to date. So to make this happen, a planet-scale array of eight ground-based telescopes worked together and used a technique called Very Long Baseline Interferometry, we usually call it VLBI, to actually point to the same source at the same time and do observation for four days. They can't do four days continuously, though, because the Earth no, does this not, annoying rotation thing. Not really. They <laughs> do four days observation. The first two days happen on mm-hmm. 5th and 6th of April, and 10th and 11th afterwards. Okay. And they combine the data later. But this is April last year. Yeah. Phew. Right. I, actually, I was going to say, wow, they're quick. <laughs> actually, that was 2017. Oh, 2017. Oh, right. So that okay. was about two years ago. Okay. Yeah. So Tells you how much hard work they've put in there. Yeah, that was really hard, to yeah. be honest. And you would be being drived crazy because yeah. they use truck to carry the data. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like 
pretty big data set and takes a lot of time. Is that on tapes or like hard drives? Yes, exactly. Because mm-hmm. um, usually when we deal with really big VLBI data set,、mm-hmm. we need hard drives, right?、Mm-hmm. For instance, like each hard drives may have eight terabytes,、mm-hmm. and we have eight or ten drives in one pack. So they basically do it in a similar way. And every time they finish one observation or a segment of the observation, they will use one or multiple pack. That's、they、a lot. Them, yeah, they put them in and they put them out,、mm-hmm. and as time goes by, they just have about half a tony of、oh、hard drive. <laughs> so that was crazy, but it happened. So that was amazing. So actually, the observation is at the frequency of one point three millimeter of wavelength and reached a resolution of incredibly twenty micro arc second, which is like that's that's crazy. That's- As、yeah. a radio interferometer myself, that's insane. Yeah, that was. We're always we're like、insane. a couple of arc seconds. Yes, let alone milli arc、yeah. seconds or micro arc seconds. Yes,、that's、definitely. Just insane.、Yeah. I mean, for me, the very best data I ever have was given by EEVN, which is、mm-hmm. another really good VLBI network, and the resolution of that data is about two hundred micro arc second. So this is like an order improvement. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that was really really amazing. So many of you, I guess most of you, might have seen the picture already, and you can see that the black hole shadow looked a bit asymmetric. And actually, that was probably because some materials around the horizons are moving towards us and actually cause Doppler shift effect. Finally, this very first picture of the black hole confirmed the prediction of the Einstein general relativity, enabled us to measure the mass directly of the black hole. And will help, especially for VLBI people, to study, let's say, galaxy evolution, let's say, black hole itself, and also how these kind of active galactic nuclei beaming jets. So many, many interesting topic, many, many new physics will coming out afterwards. But let's say it's a breakthrough, it's a milestone, and that's it. So up to now, black holes were theoretical. Yes,、so、we we never actually seen. Yes, directly. Well, they weren't specifically theoretical because as soon as we detected gravitational waves, we knew for sure that they existed. Right, we've just never、yes. actually seen one, so that's、yes. I guess the difference. So, gravitational waves mark the moment that black holes went from、Exist. theoretical to definitely. Even though the theoretic, when we say theoretical, we don't mean that we were questioning whether they existed.、Sorry. Yeah, yes, we we、yeah. knew, we like knew they were there, but that was the final like hardcore、yeah. piece of evidence. Yeah, yeah. And now we can actually see, see can the edge. Well, not. We can't see it, but we can see the lack of. We can, can see the stuff. We can sort of yes, see it. Yes, <laughs> sort of. When talking about seeing it, actually, EHT also observed the central black hole of our Milky Way. But because that black hole, actually, the variation timescale is so short, which means the proper motion of the black hole is like quick, and which makes the data reduction much much harder. And that's why they didn't release the result of the Sagittarius A. Star, which is the central black hole of our Milky Way this、mm-hmm. time, but they will definitely put this out, maybe in a year or maybe in the future few months. I would say so. That was exciting as well. So, so we should also not give Einstein too much credit because I don't think Einstein actually thought black holes could exist, right? Yes, he never believed it. it. I mean, it is an outcome of Einstein's relativity, but we should be aware that he wasn't the、yes. guy. He didn't predict them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Because a lot of there's been a lot of talk of Einstein relating to this, and that's completely、yeah. legit. But we should also maybe remember that 
too. Yeah. And I think also as a postgraduate student and knowing a lot of junior scientists, we call say junior, like postgraduate students, PhD students and postdoctoral researchers, is that a lot of this work was done by postdocs and postgrad students. For example, that Sarah Bowman? Actually, K.T. Bowman. <laughs> she was one of the, the main people who wrote a really important algorithm yes, for doing yes. this imaging. And I think it's nice. So if we remember, for example, Jocelyn Bell Burnell was a student and she didn't yeah. get the credit. And it's really, I guess, nice and kind of revolutionary for us to see that the junior scientists, so it's a huge collaboration. And I think that's a good reflection of science in general. Definitely. But it's really exciting for us as junior scientists to see the junior scientists getting the credit too. Yes, yes. yes. As well as the big wigs like Michael Kramer, for example, uh, um, yeah. who was one of the PIs of the group. So lots of people are getting credit for it, but it's especially nice for us to go, yes, the junior scientists. Yeah, we did it. It was really exciting that uh, Katie did this work during (laughs) her PhD life. Yes, exactly. Which is really amazing. Yeah, so I guess it it kind of makes us go, oh, yeah, what we do is really, it's important. Yeah, something to work to. Well, I mean, I don't think we should all compare ourselves to that kind of level of PhD. That's a bit rough. (laughs) Not all of us get the opportunity to make the first image of a black hole. And none of us will ever again. No, that's true. It's done now. We can't take that one. Um, (laughs) We can take many more, I guess. Yes, there's still lots of cool things all of us are working on in here that are PhD students. But that was a really nice part of it, I think, to see that that sort of extra bit. I haven't actually read any of the papers yet. I think it was six papers or something. Probably more, actually. There are actually six papers already submitted and one in press. So So if you happen to read it. Go for it. Soon. Yeah, I've seen some nice GIFs and things about how well the model matched the observations because we've been modeling black holes. Yeah, exactly. We've been simulating them for ages. So sort of had the same with the gravitational waves. They had that comparison already to go. They were just waiting to see it and compare it, which is must be feels so so good. Yeah. (laughs) Though my sister, when I sent her the picture, she was like, Oh, it's really blurry. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, hang on, you try and take a picture of anything and make it not blurry, let alone something that's millions of light years away. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) But to be honest, let's make a quick comment on this. Mm -hmm. Because Virgo A, the effort has been going on for more than one or two decades. People have always been looking into M87 and tend to actually zoom in as possible as they could for at least 20 years from the knowledge. So they observe the lobe, radio lobe, they observe the jets, and then afterwards they tend to zoom in and zoom in and, and go on. And it was about maybe over 30 years, 40 years, and finally we reach here to actually see a hole. That's so that was... So cool. Yeah. So cool. And I guess I also love that it's kind of a reflection of cooperation and collaboration that we can actually get over 200 people working together yeah. to do yeah. something awesome and yes, it works. And that's kind of an interesting thing to think so about cool. these days. That was really nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we'll be posting some things about this nice result. We'll definitely have some links for you in yeah. the show notes so that you can find out more if you like. And if you're interested in the hardcore science, definitely keep an eye out for those papers that are coming out because that's going to be really cool. I mean, we might even talk about them again because, you know, we haven't really delved into the science, yeah, the full will, yeah, science here yeah. yet. There will be more results coming out of this, I'm sure. And like, 100%. This is, definitely. This is, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just the start, which is why it's even more exciting to us. Because even though, you know, we all went, yes, look at that beautiful picture. To us, that wasn't really the main excitement, right? It was like, oh my gosh, what does this mean for the rest yeah. of science? It's a yes. whole new era. Yeah. It was uh, basically the start of the next generation astronomy. So. Yeah, especially black hole astronomy and interferometry as well to prove that we can actually get an image that amazing. 
because it's really hard, even interferometry on a much smaller scale, just using the UK or just an eight kilometer baseline is quite tricky. Quite challenging, yeah. Yeah, so in all different telescopes, different sizes, different exact frequencies, it's very, very cool. Yeah. And now for some Jod Bites, where we update you on what's been going on at our namesake, Jodrell Bank Observatory. The Lovell is now stalled for the summer so that the repaired works on the heritage surface can be completed. Yeah, so I guess if people remember from last year over the summer, the Lovell just pointed up the whole time. And that's because the Lovell is, I, I'm not really sure what the exact term is in the UK, but it's protected. I think it's Mark 1 listed structure. Yeah, so we still need to one, use it, so. of course. And that for us as the scientists, that's the main thing is we want to be able to do science yes. with it. Yes. Um, but what needs to be done is the original surface needs to be maintained which is underneath the surface that we now use. So that's why it's stowed at the moment. And it's not to say we won't be doing anything with it. So that means that it gives us an opportunity to kind of test some instrumental bits and pieces, but it'll be pointing up for the rest of the summer. So that means after the summer, we can get back to science. science. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So talking about summer, and we've had some updates, I guess, and everyone has if you follow the Facebook group, but... We've been thinking about it since we as the astronomers are starting to think about organization for what we're going to do for Blue Dot. Blue Dot is coming up this summer in July. But I guess I just wanted to mention it again because it's something that's really, I mean, I think it's fantastic that you can go and see science and music. The lineup for Blue Dot has been announced, guys. Isn't that exciting? Yes. Yes. So, for example, Hot Chip, New Order and Kraftwerk are some of the big music names that are going to be there. You can look up. I mean, there's so many. I couldn't possibly go through them. It will take at least another half an hour. And some amazing science talks are going to be given, for example, Helen Sharman, the first British astronaut, is going to be giving a talk, as well as Libby Jackson, Jim Al-Khalili. There are some really great names. And there seems to be a bit of a focus on the moon, which I believe is an anniversary. Yeah, so it's 50 years since the first moon landing. Yeah. So, and I think Blue Dot this year actually coincides with the actual anniversary of the first moon landing. So that'll be cool. That'll be very exciting. That'll be really nice. So there's also, I mean, there's just so much, as I said, I couldn't list it all. There's also some comedy acts as well as the music and science talks. So we'll put the website in the link. But I mean, if you Google Blue Dot Festival, it should be the first thing that comes up. Go check it out. Buy tickets. Come. You can probably meet a lot of us, Jodcasters, um, if you come along because we'll be on a stand. Hovering? Yes. Awkwardly? (laughs) No, we'll be hovering, waiting for you to come and ask some awesome science questions, especially about black holes and things like that, because it's an exciting time. Which we'll then frantically Google the answer to. Yes. Yes. (laughs) We'll definitely get on to reading those papers, guys. Yeah, we'll be done. So this month was also the Square Kilometre Array Science Meeting, run by the SKA headquarters based at Jodrell Bank. So it was really great. There was lots of really cool science results. Unfortunately, some of them are embargoed, so we can't talk about them on the Jodcast. But it makes us even more excited to see what's going to happen in the very near future if Meerkat gets fully up and running. ASCAP has loads As- of exciting results. ASCAP has loads of exciting results. That's also a nice science collaboration that's going to be doing some really big stuff. Yes. yeah, And, and it's cool it's in Manchester. Yeah, that's quite important to us because obviously it is based at Jodrell Bank. So. so it also means we've had a lot of big wigs around Jodrell and Manchester in the last week. Yes, and it was actually we are heavily involved especially the JVCA, was heavily involved in the SKA things and helped developing so much new technology, hardware, software. I'm, I'm in a group that's developing the Meertrap program, which is new software and going to be doing some really exciting new stuff. So it's cool that SKA is sort of here, even if the telescope isn't. <laughs> <laughs> so watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. 
And now let's move on. And here are the Isaac Moutier and Benjamin Shaw with Ask an Astronomer. My name is Isaac, and welcome to today's podcast.、Uh, we have Benjamin with us. Hello. Benjamin, please tell us a little about yourself. Um, so I'm a, a long-time Jodcaster, although I haven't been on for a while.、Um, I'm a postdoc here at Jodrell Bank. I mainly work on pulsars.、Um, so yeah, I'm here to do your worst with your questions. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, so、uh, our first question comes from John Morell, and here it goes: As a part of the response to how long will we survive without the sun? In the December X-ray edition, a scenario was described where a passing brown dwarf injected uh, uh, the Earth from its o-、uh, present orbit to be、uh, to become an interstellar wanderer. My question is: Who would be the first people to detect the change in the Earth's orbit, and how? My thought is that it may be. Pulsar astronomers who detect、uh, that the distance to the solar system、uh, barycenter has increased, resulting in pulses arriving earlier or later. Yeah, so I think that's correct. So just to do some quick sort of jargon busting here, the solar system barycenter is the center of mass of the solar system. So although the position of the center of the solar system is at the center of the sun, the mass of the solar system isn't distributed in such a way. That its centre is at the centre of the sun,、uh, and Jupiter is the biggest contributor to this. And in fact, the centre of mass of the solar system, or solar system barycenter, if you prefer, is near the edge of the sun in the direction of Jupiter, wherever that may be at a given time. Now, when we time pulsars, we measure what time a pulse from a pulsar arrives at the observatory, and we immediately calculate what time that pulse would have arrived at the solar system barycenter. And the reason we do this is that the Earth is rotating about its axis, and so we would measure a different pulse arrival time depending on whether our observatory is moving towards the pulsar in one half of the day, or away from the pulsar during the other half of the dis- during the other half of the day.、Mm-hmm. And so, to mitigate this effect, we effectively time pulsars from the solar system barycenter rather than from the site at which the pulse arrival time was measured. Right. So, in order to do this properly, we need to know where the solar system barycenter is at any given time.、Mm-hmm. Uh, we have models of this that we rely on、uh, when we time pulsars, and these models themselves rely on us knowing the positions of the planets in the solar system at any given time. So, you can imagine if the Earth's orbit suddenly changed, we'd notice that very quickly because the signature of the change would appear in pulsar data. Because the distance from the observatory to the solar system barycenter wouldn't be what we expected it to be, so we can think a little bit about what this signature might look like. So let's say the Earth is pulled a small way towards the constellation Cetus, for example. All of the pulsars from all of the pulses from pulsars in the direction of Cetus would arrive earlier than expected, because the radio waves haven't had to travel as far to the Earth. But all the pulses arriving from the other side of the sky, roughly in the direction of Virgo, they would arrive late because we're further away now from those pulsars. But the pulsars off to the side, at right angles to these two constellations, would still be arriving on time, because our distance to those pulsars hasn't really changed. So whether or not the pulses arrive late or early depends on their position on the sky and the direction that we've been pulled in. 
So the technical term for that is that it is a dipolar signature because you have a measurement that depends on where you're looking in the sky. Um, and the fact that we're observing a dipolar signature would give us a clue as to what happened. Either the Earth has moved or we've miscalculated the barycenter in some way. So the first thing that we might consider is are the clocks that we use to time the pulsars actually running properly? You can imagine when there's a leap second, if we don't add that leap second to our clocks, all pulses from all pulsars, wherever they are on the sky, would suddenly start arriving one second early. And we call this a monopolar signature. Um, and one of the things I work on, actually, is trying to exploit this monopolar signature in pulsar data to create a version of terrestrial time that's based on pulsar timing. So, yes, um, if the Earth's orbit was disrupted slightly, I think it probably would be the pulsar astronomers that notice first. Mm. Uh, but given how unlikely this is, it might take us a while to diagnose because we'd be looking for other sources of error first. Um, but determining whether the change is dipolar or monopolar would be the first clue as to what had actually happened. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, the other question is from John Morrow also. Here it goes. With reference to the jodbite glitches in the, in the rotation rate of, of the crab pulsar, that was in uh, June and July 2018, how about monitoring the optical pulses in addition to the radio pulses? It should not need that a large telescope, but would need a high-speed photometer to resolve the pulses. Yeah, so this this is an interesting comment that addresses the sort of radio chauvinism, as it were, that contaminates most discussions of pulsars. So pulsed emission from pulsars is generally seen at radio wavelengths, but in fact, pulsars as a phenomenon are broadband. They're seen across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, from radio waves to optical, all the way to gamma rays. Uh, most pulsars are radio pulsars. Some gamma ray pulsars are radio quiet. Uh, some neutron stars don't appear to be pulsars at all. Uh, at the very least, they're not beaming in our direction. Um, so observing at these different bands can tell us a lot about the emission of pulsars because the radio emission is thought to come from quite low altitudes, uh, whereas the high energy emission, such as the optical, likely comes from the upper reaches of the magnetosphere, the magnetic field. Uh, of the pulsar. Um, and this type of emission probably comes from interactions between a pulsar's magnetic field and a, a load of charged particles that are streaming away from the surface above the polar cap. So only a very small handful of pulsars have actually been seen to emit in the optical. The crab was the first one of these to be identified in the late 60s. And the Vela's optical pulses were discovered around a decade later. So that tells you how difficult these optical pulses are to actually find. And in fact, the crab pulsar is the only pulsar bright enough that we can actually see the individual optical pulses. Um, and the magic telescope in La Palma does long-term optical timing of the crab. For the other optical pulses, you need to have their data folded for the optical pulses to become observable. So you count the number of photons you receive on a photometer every few microseconds or so. And if you already know the rotation period of the pulsar, you can fold the data at that period and form an average pulse out of all the single pulses. All the noise cancels out, the pulses add up, and you're able to see the pulse clearly. And observatories that time the crab in the optical get the exact rotation period at any given time from radio observations, mm -hmm. usually from Jodrell Bank. We release a monthly model of the crab pulsar's rotation because it's the pulsar that by a very, very long way we pay the most attention to. Uh, so yeah, optical timing does happen for a few pulsars, 
It's no way to do high precision pulsar timing though, because the fluxes, that is the, the amount of energy under each pulse, uh, is very low. Um, we're still very dependent on radio timing for that. Okay. Oh, that question is from Kat Thais. As I understand it, when a neutron star collapses, it conserves angular momentum and gets an enormous spin. Seen by millisec pulse rates, does a black hole do the same? How do we test this? So white dwarfs and neutron stars do rotate, and they rotate by virtue of the fact that the progenitor stars that resulted in their existence also rotated. Angular momentum is this measure of the amount of rotation a body has, and it's related to the mass of the object, its size, um, or its radius, and its rotation speed. So when an object changes in size in the way that a star collapses down into a smaller object, the total amount of angular momentum possessed by that object is conserved. So a slowly rotating object that is large will collapse down to a more rapidly rotating object that is small. And the classical picture of this is the, the ballet dancer that brings their arms in to increase their rotation speed. So when matter falls into a black hole in order to either form it or grow it, some of the properties of that matter that entered it is preserved. A black hole preserves information about the mass of the swallowed particles, their charge and their spin. Any other information is completely destroyed. So this makes black holes really, really simple. They can be characterised by these three properties alone. Now, black holes are smaller in size than neutron stars, which are in turn smaller in size than white dwarfs. Neutron stars are observed to spin up to around 700 times a second. We don't know how fast a neutron star can spin. If we find this out, we'll be able to say more about what they're made of because the rotation exerts this outward force on an object and there's going to be some critical limit uh, beyond which the object can't hold itself together anymore and it'll just disintegrate. But black holes are expected to rotate a lot faster than neutron stars, up to thousands of rotations per second, so the order of kilohertz. Now, you can't really talk about black holes without the word event horizon kind of rolling off your tongue fairly shortly afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so the horizon you see out of your window now, assuming you can see that far, is due to the curvature of the Earth, and your horizon is personal to you. If you move, your horizon moves. Yeah. It's a circle centred on you. Black hole horizons are fixed. They have no interest in you or where you are. Um, so if you move, the horizon doesn't. And because of this, they divide events into two categories. So if you and a friend are both outside the horizon, you can talk to each other in principle over very long distances using light or whatever. But if you're both inside the horizon, any light or indeed any information you try to pass between you, gets focused towards the centre of the black hole. Information can't travel between events easily, at least in an unconstrained way. And certainly information can't cross from the inside to the outside, and that's how we define a black hole. We can't see into the event horizon for this reason. Information about events occurring inside is focused inwards. It will never reach you if you're outside it. So a black hole is a perfectly rigid rotator, but similar to neutron stars, there's a critical amount of angular momentum above which the behaviour of the black hole, or at least its event horizon, will change. So as masses rotate, as large masses rotate, they drag the nearby space-time around them. This is an effect called frame dragging, and it means that the black hole itself causes the space-time at the event horizon, and indeed everywhere else, to have a rotational speed. So if the rotational speed of space-time near the event horizon is equal to the speed of light, 
that will disrupt the event horizon and leave behind what we call a naked singularity. So in principle, this means that information is able to cross the event horizon away from the black hole, allowing us to take measurements from within it. Um, but that requires that the angular momentum is at or above this critical limit, which is probably not the case for most black holes, though it's probable that some of them are very near this limit. So the question I asked about measuring this spin, yeah. um, it isn't easy to do, but it is doable if you've got a, an X-ray telescope and a black hole X-ray binary. This is a binary system uh, consisting of a black hole and a normal evolved star. Material from that star will be lifted from the envelope and will go into orbit around the black hole, where it will heat up. It will begin emitting X-rays, primarily from the presence of iron nuclei in the disk. Um, and it turns out from Einstein's theory of relativity that the faster a black hole is able to spin, the closer the accreted material can get to it because the event horizon is smaller. And so one can measure how close the inner part of this accretion disk is to the black hole itself. And that gives you a proxy for the spin of the black hole. Um, and also, the iron signatures that you look for will look different whether or not the material is orbiting in the same direction as the black hole is spinning, uh, the so-called prograde rotation, or in the opposite direction to the black hole, so-called retrograde, retrograde rotation. Um, and just a little statistic, the, the supermassive black hole in the centre of the galaxy, NGC 1365, has been measured to be rotating at 84% the speed of light, mm. which a pulsar or a neutron star certainly could not survive. Mm. Well, thank you, Ben. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that, Isaac and Ben. And now, here is the second pilot for a new podcast being created by George Bendo called George's Random Astronomical Object. Please send us feedback to let George know what you think about the concept for the new podcast. Welcome to episode two of George's Random Astronomical Object. This is a pilot for a new podcast being recorded as a segment for the Jodcast. Every episode, I run a random number generator to select astronomical coordinates in the sky. I then search for an astronomical object near those coordinates using the Simbad Astronomical Database and spend a few minutes talking about the object found there and what makes it scientifically important. So now, I will run the random number generator. And the coordinates from the random number generator are 17 hours, 14 minutes, 33.8 seconds right ascension, and negative 30 degrees, 15 minutes, 44 seconds declination. This points to a pulsar in the constellation of Fucus called PSR J1740-3015. If you notice, the numbers in the name for the pulsar are very similar to the coordinates of the pulsar, and that is indeed because the numbers in the name are the coordinates, just in case you were interested. 
Now, I'm based at the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics, and there is a sizable group of pulsar astronomers here. And while I could try to talk about this myself, I thought it would be more interesting to invite one of the pulsar astronomers here to talk about this in more detail. So today I have with me Dr. Benjamin Shaw, who recently earned his PhD and really wants to be referred to as doctor. So thank you, Dr. Ben, for joining us. J1740-3015 is a radio pulsar, and it's one of 900 radio pulsars that we routinely time at Jodrell Bank, and it's one of around 2,800 pulsars that we know of in the sky. It rotates once every 600 milliseconds, it's around 20,000 years old, and it has a magnetic field strength of over 10 to the 13 gauss. So to put this into some kind of context, this is a trillion times the magnetic field of a fridge magnet. So even by pulsar standards, this is a strong magnetic field. So hold that thought because we will come back to it. This pulsar is particularly interesting to us because its rotation rate isn't stable. So many pulsars seem to just gradually and smoothly slow down over time, but some, including this one, occasionally spin up. That is, they suddenly begin rotating much faster. These events are known as glitches, and they seem to be quite common in young pulsars like this one. They're rapid, they're unpredictable, and this makes them quite hard to observe and characterise. But we currently know of around 550 of these events, and Jodrell Bank maintains a list of these on its website. So the standard picture of a pulsar glitch is as follows. We know the interiors of neutron stars comprise a superfluid. This is a fluid with little or no internal friction, so it isn't able to dissipate energy internally. So if you stir a superfluid, it will just keep rotating forever. The crust, from which we observe the radio emission is slowing down because of the pulsar's magnetic field. If you have a bar magnet and you spin it, you will induce an electric field that opposes the motion of the magnetic fields, and so gradually the pulsar slows down over time. But the rotating fluid on the inside doesn't, and so over time a big velocity difference can arise between the superfluid interior and the neutron star crust. And for reasons we don't fully understand yet, occasionally this neutron star superfluid interior is able to deposit its energy into the crust, causing it to spin up, and we observe that as a glitch. Since its discovery in 1985, 1740-3015 has undergone 36 of these events. Now this makes it one of the glitchiest pulsars that we know of. Most pulsars that glitch have been seen to do so only once. So the combination of its glitchy nature and the fact that it has this strong magnetic field potentially make it a very useful pulsar to us. Now, magnetars are radio-quiet neutron stars that have these super-strong magnetic fields, 10 to maybe 100 times stronger than normal radio pulsars. Now, it's not known how magnetars fit into the overall evolutionary picture of neutron stars, but it's something we want to find out. Are they related to radio pulsars, or are they a completely distinct class of object? Now, magnetars, when they glitch, sometimes emit these strong bursts of X-rays. Normal radio pulsars tend not to show any sort of radiative changes when they glitch. However, in 2008, the otherwise high magnetic field radio pulsar, called J1846-0258, emitted copious X-rays coincident with a large glitch, so this leads us to ask the question, are these two types of objects the same, but what we observe from them is just down to how strongly magnetised they are? So if we take a normal radio pulsar, crank up its magnetic field, will it start behaving like a magnetar? Now this is why 1740-3015 with its strong magnetic field is so important to us. To test this hypothesis, we're timing 1740 and a bunch of other very strongly magnetised radio pulsars and we're waiting for it to glitch. When it does, 
If the glitch is big enough, we'll use X-ray telescopes in orbit around the Earth to search for these radiative changes. If we see them, it would cement the idea that high magnetic field radio pulsars are just quiet magnetars, and it would unify these two classes of objects in the neutron star population. Well, thanks for that, Ben. Or, excuse me, Dr. Ben? You're welcome, George. The location on the Earth's surface that corresponds to the position of PSR J1740-3 15 in the sky is between Rapa Nui, also known as Easter Island, and Chile in the South Pacific Ocean. So my special guest this week was Dr. Benjamin Shaw. The audio was recorded and edited by George Bendo. The sound effects are from the Freesound Project. Thanks for listening. And now on to the feedback. Actually, there was a Facebook feedback from Philip Lee Richer. He said, And now we come to that part of the show where we can't fit in. Whether two comes between three and four. Is there any hope for us? Actually, this is from our recent April Fool's Outtech Reel. Thanks, Philip, for the message. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. We have a YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. We have a Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And you can also send us posts. The address is on the website. And do not forget to send us space poetry. And now that I've said this, I am seriously excited. So please don't disappoint me. Yes, I'm we judging are re- all of you. Bring on the poetry corner. <laughs> bring the poetry. Yes, exactly that. So excited. I also want Crispin and Hongming. We're going to all write a poem, guys. Oh, of course. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. So so get ready for the next Jodcast. Whoever's presenting will be like sliding them just some poetry to read out to you guys. <laughs> Shoving it under the door as they present. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Alrighty. So thanks for listening, guys. And thanks to Leanne Dessen and Dr. Tana Joseph for the interview. The editors were George Bendo, Lizzie Lee, and Dapika Venkatu. The producer was Naomi Asabre Frimpong and Michael Wright. And until next time, Jod on! on.